mature Christians don't merely go to church. They live on mission. At Calvary Bible Church, we hold to a philosophy that I think every member should hold to, and that is, what some, it's something that we call every member ministry. The last time we met, we began studying Paul's final exhortation in his brief letter to the Colossians, and in it, I believe, Paul assumes the church has a mindset of every member ministry. That is, he's fleshing out for us what he mentioned explicitly in the church to the church of Ephesus in chapter 4, verse 11, namely, that God has gifted the church with pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You see, the pastor and elders of a local church, pastor, elder is a, uh, is a, both sides are two sides of the same coin. But when we talk about pastors and elders of the local church, they are not the only ones who should be living on mission. Rather, all the members of the church, all the members of the church should cultivate a lifestyle of personal ministry. In other words, as I mentioned last time, Calvary Bible Church should be viewed by us as a community that has four pastors, four right now because we sent two away, we had six. We have four pastors, but we should understand that we have four pastors, but we have nearly 300 ministers. That's how you should see yourself. Not as a pew warmer, not as someone who has come to be entertained by the music or just the fellowship of seeing other people that you like. You are called to minister. You are called to serve. The logical question then is, what does living on mission involve? And what does it look like? How do we do that? Well, of course, we do it by taking the initiative in a lot of different ways. There are many ways that you can minister. You can take the initiative by being hospitable to one another and to outsiders. And you know, I mean, just look around in this room and down the hall, and if you've been here for a long time, you're seeing a lot of people that you don't know. Don't let them get out of here without loving them, serving them, praying for them. Be on mission. You can, you can do this by initiating sacrificing your time and your treasure for the needs of others or counseling one another, encouraging one another, addressing sin in one another's life as needed, and confessing sin when necessary, by volunteering to do the dirty jobs, by actively loving your wife or husband and discipling your children or leading a small group or teaching a Sunday school class. or There are 10,000 different ways that you can engage in mission, your mission, actively serving the body and the unbelievers around us. All of these and a thousand others form the kind of ministry that good Christians would point to. And, and they all are the natural consequence of a life lived on mission for the glory of God. These are the kinds of things that good Christians do. And when we talk about ministry, these are the things. Nevertheless, 
the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul thinks of personal ministry. When he thinks of personal ministry, the first thing that comes to his mind isn't any of those things. The first thing that comes to his mind is prayer. Now, you might argue that there are other things like the preaching of the word, but I'm an expository preacher. Paul's talking about prayer. Paul's talking about us ministering to one another and to the lost, first of all, through prayer. And so the last time we met, we emphasized the fact that the believer's mission mindset should be prayerful. That is to say, one of the foundational components of Christ's mission for the church in the world is prayer. It's prayer. Paul is simply exhorting us to do what God has always called his people to do, namely, to pray. To pray. And so we are in Colossians chapter 4. This is the 27th message in this short epistle, but oh, so rich. Hasn't it been rich? We've got one more week in this, and I'm, I'm already up to my neck in it, and I can't wait to share with you what we'll discover together next week. But we are in chapter 4, and here's, here's what the text says. I, I, I didn't have you stand to read this. We need to keep moving. I have a lot to say. I didn't preach last week, so I got a double sermon, right? And so here's what we read, Colossians chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. And so here we go. Paul talks about how to engage in personal ministry. If we're going to start at the foundation, if we're going to start at the bottom, it's prayer. Verse 2 says, we are to pray steadfastly. If you have the New American Standard, it says, be devoted to prayer. We are to pray watchfully. That means we remain in prayer. We keep alert in prayer. We stay awake in prayer. I think just another way of saying, be devoted to prayer. And then we are to pray thankfully. So we're to pray steadfastly, watchfully, and thankfully. That's just what the text says. And that's enough to get us on our knees for lengths of time. So whether your, your particular ministry at any particular moment involves cleaning toilets or singing with the praise team or taking care of babies or preaching sermons or talking to your next-door neighbor... It should be done by believers who are devoted, watchful in prayer. Our mission mindset must be prayerful. Second, our mission mindset must be plural. It must be plural. That's P-L-U-R-A-L. Look at verses 3 and 4. 
At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. We'll come back to four in a moment. Notice the plural pronouns here. Pray for us, that God may open the door for us. Who is the us? What I want you to see here is this is not Paul out all by himself doing everything that we know he did. So who is the us? Well, I want you to see that Paul is not the only member of his mission ministry team. A careful reading of this letter reveals that Paul is accompanied by Timothy, Epaphras, Luke, Aristarchus, John Mark. He's got a great name, doesn't he? John. John, they also call me Mark. Hi, my name's Dan. You can call me Bob. I don't know why he had two names, but he had two names. And then there was Demas, who, by the way, we'll talk about this next week, who left Paul and became an apostate. This is Paul's prison ministry team. I say prison ministry because Paul mentions in verse 3 that he's in jail. He's in jail. Nevertheless, even while he is shackled to some Roman guards, one or, or, or two, he is still living on mission. He is not so shackled that he can't write. And he's not so shackled that he can't speak. He is on mission. He's still strategizing for ministry. And beloved, this should instruct you and me. Wherever we are, no matter the circumstance, we can be used of God to minister to others. From jail, from a hospital bed, from your home during pandemic, at the office, on Saturday morning at a soccer game, or whatever it is for you next. But what is Paul's strategy for advancing his ministry? What does he do? Well, after last week's message, we shouldn't be surprised that he asks, he not only tells the Colossians to pray, now he is asking them to pray for him. For him. You see, prayer was not a small thing for Paul, like it is for so many of us. He's not like many Christians whose first impulse when they hit a problem or are perplexed by something or need something, they call a friend for advice or try to rely on their own wits to make advances in ministry or solve a problem. Paul understood that fruitfulness in his mission depended largely upon the prayers of his partners in ministry. And I'm convinced that the reason the Holy Spirit had this part of the letter inspired, written for us in the text, is so that we would learn to do the same. Once again, we're reminded that we are not merely Christians. We are not merely individual Christians before the eyes of God. We are members of Christ's body, and therefore, we are members of one another. And, and there's, there's no place that we experience this more biblically and practically than when we share the Lord's table. When we take that bread and eat it, when we take that cup and drink it, we are not only reminding ourselves individually 
that we belong to Christ by his blood and righteousness. But we are reminded that we are in covenant with one another as the body of Christ. We need one another. As Americans, we don't feel like we need one another as much. I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. But I could almost predict that we're going to need each other more as the days go by and the years go by. And I don't care who wins the election. I just think that's true. We're going to need each other more. And if we are living God's way, we are dependent on one another for prayer. Paul's life depended on prayer. His ministry depended on prayer. And he believed that God answers prayer. In fact, the Bible is full of answered prayer. For example, Hannah prayed for a son, and she was heard. God gave her a son. Elijah prayed that the rain would stop for three and a half years, and he was heard, and the rain ceased. God answered the prayers of the psalmists. He answered the prayer of Moses. He answered corporate prayers. He answers the prayer of the oppressed. He answers the prayers of the penitent. He answers the prayers for healing. He answers prayers for wisdom. And the author of Hebrews, I love this, to cap it all off, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 5-7 that Jesus in the days of his flesh offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who is able to save him from death and, what's the next three words? He was heard. You realize Jesus prayed? Have you ever thought about the theology behind Jesus praying? I mean, he's one of the members of the Godhead. And yet... When he was on this earth, he was the man, Christ Jesus. He was God and man, and as man, he prayed. He prayed. He prayed more than probably any of us have in our entire lives. He prayed. He was dependent on his Father. And so he prayed. Need proof of that? Well, anytime today, open up your Bible to any of the four Gospels and go to the end, and you'll find resurrection. This is the answer to Jesus' prayer, that he would not be left in Sheol. Scriptures everywhere testifies that God answers prayer. And I know some of you have kept records of God's answers for decades. And if someone were to question whether or not God answers prayer, you could show them in tangible ways how God has answered and answered and answered and answered and answered. Proud people don't pray. Self-sufficient people don't pray. Consider this. Saul of Tarsus viewed himself as an independent, self-reliant ruler. Saul of Tarsus. Paul the Apostle, however, viewed himself as an inadequate, dependent child who lived, in Bunyan's words, who lived upon him who is invisible. 
He lived upon the prayers of God's people. And so he asked them to pray. And there is good biblical precedent to do that. Again, it's all through Scripture. Not only that we, we believe that God answers prayer, but that we actually ask one another to pray. For example, in asking others to pray, he was like the Old Testament prophet Daniel in Daniel 2. When all the magicians were about to be slaughtered for their failure to be able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, they brought Daniel in, and Daniel said, I can't, I, I can't, I can't interpret the dream, but I know who can. And so as he left to begin seeking the Lord about his dream, he sent a note, a letter, telling his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to seek, quote, to seek mercy from the God of heaven on my behalf. He asked for prayer from his ministry partners, his friends. He didn't go it alone. Again, Paul's like Esther, the queen, who in the day of her distress and her people, they called out, she called out to all of them, gathered them in, in Susa and asked them to fast and pray while she goes and lays her life on the line before the king. And they prayed, and the Lord heard and rescued his people. Again, Paul is like the disciples before him, whom Paul ironically tried to kill. In Acts 20, who upon hearing that Peter had been thrown in jail, everyone gathered at the home of Mary, who, by the way, had a son whose name was John, or Mark, whatever you prefer. And the angel came as a response to prayer. I take it that it was a response to their prayer that an angel showed up. And Peter could hardly believe it until the doors started opening. Do you believe that God answers prayer? Look at me. Look up here. Do you believe that God answers prayer? Then pray. Pray. And pray not only for your own needs as you minister to others, but also for your partners in ministry. But you can't do that if you're not in ministry. If you're not ministering to others. You say, well, I don't know how to minister to others. Do you have a Bible? Can you sit down with someone? Just read it. It'll speak for itself. You can minister to them. This is what I mean when I say our mission mindset should be plural. We should be doing this together, formally and informally. A lot, in fact, more informal than formal. Far more. It is good to strategize and plan for how you intend to minister to, in various ways, but the fruit of such ministry is dependent on the plurality of men and women who pray. There's a part of me that wonders how our church would change if every member of the body was devoted to prayer just for themselves and for their families. How would, how would Calvary Bible Church change? I mean, if all of us were devoted to personal prayer. But you know what? Paul wouldn't be satisfied with that. 
You see, the Christian life is not merely about you and Jesus. It's about embracing God's call on our lives to partner with one another. It's something that transcends our own individual faithfulness to Christ. It calls us to assist others who are also striving to live on mission. And I know in in my years in ministry, sometimes the people that I know who are on mission, they get knocked down, they get weary, and they just need somebody to come and minister to them. And by the way, thank you, congregation, for all the cards and the unexpected gifts It took me two days to figure out why I was getting all this mail from from people in the congregation. Pastor Appreciation Month, right? So thank you. Thank you for encouraging us. That is one way to partner in ministry. I'm not asking for any more cards. It's very nice of you to do it. So as Paul was formulating his fallible dependent plan for ministry, there he was in jail, He prayed. He wanted more effective ministry. And so he wrote a letter designed in part to solicit help from the letter's recipients, namely the members of the church of Colossae. Now, if you were Paul writing to your ministry partners from jail, what would you ask them to pray for? Well, we could speculate. I could speculate. I know what I would pray for. But it really doesn't matter what I would pray for. We know what Paul wanted. We know what he wanted us to pray for. Because he tells us here in this text. Now, if I were Paul, I might ask the Colossians to send a delegation that could pressure the local magistrates to release me immediately on grounds of false arrest or something legal sounding like that. But not Paul. He never asked for that. He never asked for that. Rather, he asked his ministry partners simply to pray. And what does he want them to petition God for? Not release. Although he was grateful for release when it came. Not for special privileges. Rather, he focuses on two specific requests. First, that God would give them fresh opportunity to proclaim Christ. And second, that he might proclaim the message with clarity. Clarity. In Paul's own words, let's refresh again on this, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. In other words, pray that God would provide fresh opportunity for evangelism. Isn't this a timely word? You know, Mike Gendron and I did not talk about, hey, are you going to talk about evangelism? Because I'm talking about evangelism. That was not on the radar. We're, we're just going to the next text, and it's exactly what, what Mike was speaking of in Sunday school and what apparently the Lord wants you to hear this morning from the pulpit. Here's the word of the Lord. In other words, Paul prayed that God would provide fresh opportunity for evangelism. And we know that that's what Paul has in mind because of the phrase, the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. 
That's a direct reference to the gospel. He wants to proclaim the gospel, the mystery of Christ. Paul's employing kind of an apostolic lingo for gospel preaching. We are preaching the mystery of Christ. And the reason he refers to it as a mystery is not because it's hard to understand, but because it's not of human origin. It didn't come from man. There, there wasn't a magisterium that originally met and, and, and said, what should we say we believe? No, this was the Holy Spirit bringing the truth of God, the word of God to men of God. It wasn't invented by men. Therefore, it was never known by men until God revealed it. In his letter to the Ephesians, he makes it clear that this mystery of Christ, same phrase, was revealed, revealed is the key term here, was revealed to the apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, it came by divine revelation. In fact, the only other place where we see the formula, mystery of Christ in the New Testament, is Ephesians 3, where Paul explains that the mystery of Christ is a divine message and that it was preached to the Gentiles who were now fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Ephesians 3, verses 4 through 6. Moreover, when Paul writes to the Gentile believers here in Colossae, he abbreviates this explanation by simply saying this. Here is the mystery. What is the mystery? The mystery is... Christ in you, the hope of glory. And who's he speaking to? He's speaking to Gentiles. It is for the Jews first, yes, but also for the Gentiles. Praise God for that. How many of you in this room are Gentiles? Most of us. Oh, my friends, do you see why Paul's ministry required prayer? Evangelism is not a human business. Evangelism is not a human business. Only God can change the heart. Only God can grant saving faith. Only God can cause a hardened sinner to believe. Witness Acts 16, 14. Do you remember the story of when Paul who was on one of his missionary journeys, he came to Philippi, the city of the ancient city of Philippi. It was, it was pretty old by the time he got there. And he's wanting to plant a church there. And Luke tells us that when he arrived there, he, he met a Gentile businesswoman named Lydia, a God-fearing Gentile. And he spoke to her and the other women who had gathered for prayer there as, as women who were seeking God, even as Gentiles, but they didn't know the gospel. And so Paul explained the mystery of Christ to them. And do you remember what happened? Here's what the text says. Acts 16, 14. And the Lord opened her heart. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord opened her heart. Do you know why? Do you know why I love Jesus? Because one day the Lord opened my heart. It's not because I figured it out. 
It's not because I was bright enough. <laughs> because the Lord opened my heart. This is what Jeremiah prophesied. This is what Ezekiel prophesied. That God would give people a new heart. See, we don't have to break down doors of resistance in evangelism. We just need to ask God to open the door. Open the door. When you open the door, Lord, would you give them eyes to see and a heart to believe and obey the gospel? Or how about Acts 11? We see something similar when the disciples scattered after the stoning of Stephen. And, and you know what? You know why they, they scattered? They were fearful. You know why they were fearful? Because of Saul of Tarsus. And many of them went to Antioch and began preaching the Lord Jesus, the mystery of Christ. And we read in Acts 11.21, listen carefully. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number of those who believed turned to the Lord. Why did they turn to the Lord? Because the hand of the Lord was with them. You see, beloved, success in evangelism and in any work of God is always the work of God. The evangelist is merely the person who delivers the message. I just like to say, you know, we're, we're nothing special. We're just the mailman. We show up at the door and we deliver the message. And we call people to repent and believe. Sometimes when I'm sharing the gospel at the end, I'll say, especially if they're not very responsive, I'll say, you have now heard the message of salvation. Do not harden your heart. And we know from his letter that Paul was always concerned about evangelism. He's always concerned about the gospel being proclaimed, gospel growth. And we know from his letter to the Philippians that Paul had a surprisingly fruitful evangelistic ministry to the soldiers who were guarding him while he was under house arrest. At the conclusion of his letter to the Philippians, he writes these words, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. I was reading that today. You know, when I'm studying, you go in deep, and you're trying to think about every word and every phrase and everything. And it occurred to me, I wonder if they knew anything about these men in Caesar's household, probably the soldiers, right? I wonder if they knew anything about that before Paul wrote this. And as they're reading it, they come down and, and, he, and he makes this statement. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And he just leaves that. Can you imagine getting that letter? What's he, what's he mean? What's he mean? Is he telling us that his ministry continues? Is he telling us that these hardened Roman soldiers, I mean, these were the elite who were there around Caesar. Is he telling us, talk about subtle, Paul was subtle. Paul doesn't seem particularly anxious to be released, but he longs for more opportunity to share the life-changing mystery of Christ with the people where they're bound or free. So from prison, he asked the saints to pray. He writes, pray this, that God may open to, us a, open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. 
You know, as I studied this passage this week, it struck me by a scripture-prompted thought. Perhaps the reason we don't find ourselves with very much gospel opportunity is because we don't pray for it. We don't ask. In fact, in American Christian lingo, the only time you hear about an open door is when someone is talking about they think they found the will of God. This is not a discerning the will of God passage. If you're trying to discern the word of will of God by open doors, you've got to be careful. Some open doors lead to elevator shafts. Just because the door is open doesn't mean you should walk through. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not teaching us how to discern the will of God. He's asking the Lord to open up opportunity so that he could proclaim the mystery of Christ. I wonder if we don't have more opportunities than we do because we don't ask. Let me make that a little bit more personal. Perhaps the reason I don't have more gospel opportunities is because I haven't been asking for it. Paul apparently believed the words of Jesus who declared, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. He's not going to make you pray that. He's not going to pray it for you. There are some things that God intends to do that he will not do apart from prayer. Ask. Paul believed this was a, a, a bona fide invitation from the Lord, from the living God, to come to, to him with all of our needs, with all of our ambitions, with all of our desires. Do you? Do we? So this is what we need to do. You ready for a, an application point? There have been a few already, but... Starting today, would you join me in praying for more open doors? And, and I'm not saying pray that those, whoever might be inclined to give evangelism in our church, that they might have open doors. Rather, would you pray that God would give you opportunity to share the gospel this week? Ask for an open door. Claim the mystery of Christ. And while you're at it, can I ask you to join others for prayer on Sunday morning? You want, you want a ministry? All you have to do is come a little early on Sunday morning. I haven't advertised this enough, hardly at all. And maybe you don't know this, but there is a small room down the hall just on the east just outside the east doors of uh, Fellowship Hall, there's a room there, and it's got a sign over it, and it says, prayer room. It's not the only place you can pray. But if you wanted to be a part of that team this morning, next Sunday, and I said this morning because I was thinking about, I poked my head in the, in, uh, through the window to see who was in there this morning. There were about five or six people. It ought to be 50. We're going to have to move rooms. But if you could be here at 8.15, you don't need any special gifts. Just come. Just come and pray. If the room isn't big enough, we'll move down the hall. 
If we need fellowship hall to do that, then we'll take fellowship hall. Next week, 8.15, it's not in the bulletin. Just come, and we'll figure out how to make that work. What should you pray for when you come and when you leave today? Well, as I said, we should pray for opportunity. Additionally, we should pray as Paul, the apostle, asked prayer for himself and the other ministry leaders who planted that church. So the elders of Calvary Bible Church need your prayers. Praise God. So many of those letters that came this week said, we pray for you, we pray for you, we pray for you. And that is no small thing. We need your prayers. We need your prayers. Would you pray for the elders of, of Calvary Bible Church to keep us pure, to keep us focused on the word, to give us wisdom, to give us a heart that, that pleads with God to give us opportunity? So Paul's first request is that the saints in Colossae would pray for an open door to proclaim the ministry of Christ. And by the way, it's not just pray for an open door. It's when you get the open door, walk through it, say something, speak. So the second prayer request that Paul gives us, he asks them to pray for clarity as he proclaims the message. Notice verse 4, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Listen, anyone can make the gospel confusing. Confusing. Anybody can make the gospel confusing. And I confess that I've made that mistake more often than I care to remember. It's, it's easy when you've got, you know, a thousand pages of theology wrapping around in your head and you think other people want to know that and they don't when you're sharing the gospel. It's easy to be unclear. But clarity... Clarity requires a biblical plan and the power of the Spirit. It's the Spirit in the Word. You are the vessel. You are the vehicle. You are the mailman. You deliver the message. But you should know the message. You should know the message. By the way, a little gospel tract here. I got a stack of them over here. It's a small stack. I was hoping to have a bigger stack. It never arrived. Um, but it is, what is the gospel? It's very simple. It's got four main points to it. There's also a book by the exact same name, same author, and it looks just like this. You can order it online. It's not much. There are a number of good um, strategies for how to communicate clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we need to do that. We need to be clear. You know what? When, I, when I'm working all week on these messages... I'm thinking clarity, clarity, clarity. How can I be more clear? What can I cut to make it clear? What can I add to make it clear? Maybe I need to throw, rip up the whole thing and throw it away. I even have a method for doing that. How do you make it clear? We've got to make it clear. This is how we ought to speak. Anyone can make the gospel confusing. But those who are pretty good at communicating the gospel have made the effort to learn how. If someone were to come to you today, they're probably not going to say this, but if someone were to come to you today and say, what must I do to be saved? Would you know how to answer? Now, they're not going to ask it like that. You're going to be asking them. You're going to be pursuing them. But if you can't answer that question, you're not ready. You're not prepared. How are you going to be clear? 
Yes, it has to be the Holy Spirit who illuminates the heart. And by illuminating the heart, what I mean is it has to be the Holy Spirit who gives the sinner the capacity to believe and obey. That's what illumination is. What scriptures will you use? What questions should you be prepared to answer? Now, the good news for you E4M guys tonight, I've asked Mike Gendron just to stay over. He's coming to my house for the afternoon so that he can be with you guys and me tonight because I wanted to tell some stories when I was down there about Mike because I have a few and uh, we haven't had contact for a lot of years, but uh, the few times we have had contact have been exciting. Um, I'll tell you about uh, the thing that first caught my attention with Mike. I was invited by the guys at Countryside Bible Church when I was, a, an, I was the new senior pastor here. I didn't know what I was doing. And, and the pastor out there said, hey, have you ever been to a shepherd's conference, John MacArthur? And I said, no, I've never even heard of that. And, um, and so he said, well, why don't you come? And I said, I can't afford it. He said, I didn't ask you to pay. We just want to take you. You know, he saw an opportunity to minister to a young pastor. And so he took me out there, and the, the teaching was great, and, you know, that, that, that ministry just changed our lives, changed this church. But one thing I remember is one night we went to the Claim Jumper, which is a restaurant there, and there was a group of, I don't know, 20 of us. And uh, I'm down at one end, and I don't hardly know anyone. I'm trying to engage in some conversation. And I look down, and, and at the other end of the, of the table, there's Mike. He's not eating. He's talking to the waitress. And I'm eating, and I look down. He's still talking to the waitress. I'm eating. I look down. He's still talking to the waitress. And then he does this. <laughs> he gives her one of these, and he starts explaining it to the waitress. I asked him about that this week. I, t I told him uh, a week or so ago when we were having contact about him coming. I said, uh, you probably don't remember that, but I do. And the following year, crazy providence, the following year, we did the same thing. I went out there with these guys. Mike Jenner was part of the team. We're at the claim jumper again, eating. And I looked down the table, and here he is. He's got a tract out. He's talking to the waitress. And I looked a little closer. It was the same waitress from a year ago. And they just picked up their conversation where they left off. Mike told me last week, here's our strategy. We go to restaurants to evangelize waitresses. And if there's enough time after that, we order food. So you E4M guys are going to get introduced to that. And for all of you who right now are really bummed because you're not a part of E4M, uh, it's too late. But we are uh, in negotiations with Mike. That sounded fancier than it actually is. But we're going to talk about a time for him to come back and do something like he did this morning, except let it be focused entirely on evangelism. Wouldn't that be great? Would you enjoy that? One of you. Did I hear one person said they were going to enjoy that? You want to, would you like to see that happen? Oh, my word. I got more work to do, apparently. Okay. So until then, let me just encourage you to take the risk with that family member or that friend or the waitress or the neighbor. Ask them about their relationship with the Lord. Help them to see that we are all sinners in the eyes of God who need a Savior. That in God's eyes, listen carefully, in God's eyes there's a righteousness that you desperately need, you don't have, and you cannot earn. It is Christ for righteousness. 
Christ alone. It's the message of Romans. And then tell them that Jesus is God's solution to that inescapable problem, the lack of righteousness. And by his righteous life and bloody death, in our place, sinners are redeemed and rescued from the just and holy wrath of God, completely forgiven, reconciled to their creator. Take the risk. Speak. That being said, in addition to having a clear strategy for sharing the gospel, we must also pray. Pray that the Spirit will quicken their minds and hearts, causing a desire to believe and obey. As Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, he said this, No one, no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. You can say the words, but you can't mean it from the heart, apart from the Holy Spirit. So pray. You see, beloved, why we have to pray. This is not a human work. Your gospel ministry must be strategic, but even more importantly, it must be dependent. Dependent upon the Spirit of God, who alone can save. So we've learned that our mission mindset must be prayerful, it must be plural. We'll talk about the plurality of it next week as Paul introduces us to the hidden ministry team that he hasn't said anything about until now. So finally, number three, and briefly, our mission mindset must be personal. Look at verses five and six. Five and six. Let your speech, let, now, now, now look at the pronoun here, let your speech. He's been talking about him. Pray for us, pray for us, pray for us, pray for us. Now let me talk about you. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Just in case any of us may be having lingering thoughts that ministry, especially gospel ministry, is something reserved for people like the apostles and pastors, Paul speaks directly to the congregation. The message of this text begins with talking to God about people. And here we're talking to people about God. And this exhortation is for all of us. We know Paul is speaking about the ministry to the lost because he calls them outsiders. That is, they are outside the family of God. In Mark 4, Jesus makes a distinction between his disciples and those who are outside, Mark 4.11. We are Christ's beloved. We, the church, we are in a, a very unique relationship with Christ. We are his beloved. We are his chosen. We are his children. And we should relish the privilege of having Christ as our delight our Savior and our friend. Nevertheless, we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to project a kind of sanctified superiority over our unbelieving friends as we speak. It's so easy to rest in the reality of our own salvation, forgetting the fact that everywhere we go there are people who know nothing of the danger that they are in nor God's gift of salvation. 
What is our responsibility toward outsiders? Well, Paul says, we are, we congregation, are to walk wisely. Walk wisely among them. Don't walk haphazardly. Don't follow them. Don't do what they do. Walk wisely. While they're being foolish, you be wise. In Paul's day, the Jews especially held Christians in derision and contempt. But Christians were to labor not to defend themselves, but to win over those who had a negative view of Christ. To walk wisely, then, means to live before unbelievers with an irreproachable life, beyond reproach. There should be nothing in our lives that would jeopardize our testimony. There should be no one that we know that if we were to share the gospel with them, they would say, it obviously hasn't made a difference in your life. Look at how you live. Look at how you speak. Look, look at how you discipline your kids. Love your neighbors. Serve them. Bless them. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Live in such a way that will make it easy for them to hear and believe the gospel. I'm speaking humanly. Then when God answers our prayer for gospel opportunity, seize the moment. Redeem the time. Take a deep breath, step through the open door, and speak the mystery of Christ. The phrase here, make the best use of the time, means to redeem the time or to buy back the time. It was a commercial term, and it pictures a Christian as a faithful steward who knows an opportunity when he sees one. And Paul's just saying, don't miss the opportunities. Don't miss the opportunities. Pray for the opportunities and don't miss them when they come. Pray for opportunities. Speak and seize the moment for the glory of God. It's not enough simply to walk wisely and kindly. Sooner or later you have to speak. We must also speak. We must tell the mystery of Christ. And when we do, we must speak in a winsome manner. Notice verse 6, Paul commands, let your speech always, how often? Always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each one. In Luke 4, we read about Jesus, Luke 4, 22, that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. That's the model we're to follow. Don't be argumentative. I've seen videos of guys who are doing apologetics, and, and I think you've totally forgotten what you're trying to do here. You're just trying to win the argument or, or make the unbeliever feel stupid. Don't do that. I used to know a guy who was from this church years ago. He was a big guy, and he was loud. He was a fierce evangelist. He could get almost anybody to pray the sinner's prayer by force of sheer intimidation. <laughs> Don't be like that. The Holy Spirit can do it without you manipulating and forcing and cajoling. Don't be argumentative. Don't be a spiritual bully. Be winsome. Be gracious. Be kind in your speech. But be bold. 
speak the truth unapologetically, but do it with kindness. I mean, even if you have to say, listen, you have now heard the gospel. Do not harden your heart. Do it with tears, or at least with an attitude. Be gracious, be kind with your speech. To borrow a term from Ephesians, we must speak the truth in love. I think Warren Wiersbe gets the balance right when he writes, the Christian's walk and talk must be in harmony with each other. Nothing will silence the lips of, nothing will silence the lips like a careless life. And what he means by that is, nothing will silence your lips like a careless life. However, he writes, when character, conduct, and conversation are all working together, it makes for a powerful witness. As I said at the beginning, I think the point of this passage is to encourage us that God has called the members of his body to live on mission. We believe in every member ministry. That, at, that is, at Calvary Bible Church right now, there are four pastors. There should be nearly 300 ministers. Are you a minister? Are you one of the ministers at Calvary Bible Church? Are you actively pursuing the will of God in your life from the Bible? You say, well, what is the will of God? I'll tell you two things. Number one, pray. Number two, speak. Speak from the word of God. Speak the mysteries of Christ. And so I ask you, beloved, do you pray steadfastly? Do you pray watchfully? Do you... Pray with thanksgiving? Do you pray for opportunity to declare the mysteries of Christ to an unbeliever within the circle of your influence? Do you pray for the elders of our church that we would be faithful with the gospel? Do you pray that we would preach and teach and counsel with clarity? You know what the best thing you can do for the preachers of this church? The one thing that you can do to help us with clarity is to pray. And when you minister to outsiders, is your speech winsome? Or are you just trying to win the wrestling match? Trying to win the fight? Is it full of the flavor of grace and the mystery of the cross? Beloved, that's how Christians are supposed to live in this world. Because as I've been saying now for a few weeks, Mature Christians don't merely go to church. They live on mission. Let's pray. Father, we have some growing up to do, I think, in some areas. Praise you, Lord. Paul tells us he's not embarrassed to remind us of these things again and again. We've heard this before. And we get excited about it. And then we drift away. And we repent. And you forgive us and empower us again. Oh, Lord, revive us again. Change our hearts. Cause us to be excited about nothing more than the proclamation of Jesus in fellowship with him. Thank you for this church, for the work that you're doing here. Thank you for 
all these dependent souls who love you and truly desire, truly desire to be pleasing to you in all respects. Bless them, Father. We thank you for how you have and you will. Give us opportunity this week. I pray right now, let this be the first prayer in this regard. Lord, would you give us opportunity and the grace to seize the moment. Lord, we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus.